Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells play a key role in the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is my old friend Alistair McIntosh, who's been described by BBC TV as one of the world's leading environmental campaigners, which indeed he is. He's a pioneer of modern land reform in Scotland, and he helped bring the Isle of Egg into community ownership. On the Isle of Harris, he negotiated withdrawal of the world's largest cement company, Lafarge, from a devastating super quarry plan. He then served unpaid to avoid conflicts of interest on the company's sustainability stakeholders panel for 10 years to help further corporate and environmental and social responsibility. Alistair guest lectures on non-violence at military staff colleges, including for over two decades, on some of the UK Defence Academy's most senior courses. His books include Soil and Soul, People versus Corporate Power, Spiritual Activism, Leadership as Service, Poacher's Pilgrimage, An Island Journey, and Riders on the Storm, which was long listed for the Wainwright Prize in Global Conversation in Global Conservation 2021. A Quaker with an interfaith outlook, focusing much of his work around spirituality, Alistair lives in Glasgow with his wife Varen Nicola. There, he's a founding trustee of the Galgale Trust, which works with poverty, community and human potential. And he's an honorary professor in the College of Social Sciences at the University of Glasgow. Well, it's very nice to have you here, Alistair. It's lovely to see you again, David. (laughs) Glasgow (laughs) and France, the old alliance. Indeed. So I'm going to go straight into the first question, which is a shaping moment or moments involving your choice of work. There there may well be more than one. Oh, well, there's many, David. There's many. But I think in terms of your interest and the, the interest in consciousness and how that relates to where we are at in the world today and where we have agency to change the world today, An experience that I would like to start with was when I was um, just 18, I was a student at Aberdeen University, and I failed two of my four first-year exams. I failed um, both physics and chemistry in the first year, so I had to reset them. Now, the, the reason why I failed them was not that I was particularly bad at these subjects, but that when I got to university and you get thrown into that explosive atmosphere of dialogue and all kinds of things being discussed, especially as it was in the early to mid-1970s, which is basically how long it took until the 1960s hit the north of Scotland. So it was like being right there in the epicentre of the 60s um, at Aberdeen, and I'm talking 73, 74 here. One of the constant questions being discussed was the nature of life. Is there such a thing as God? Is spirituality for real? Is there any evidence for life after death, etc.? Now, you've got to remember 
that I was raised in the Isle of Lewis, which is highly Presbyterian. And I had rejected that take, that Calvinist take on religion. And yet there was an inner calling in me to find out if there was more to life than that. So I joined the Society for Psychical Research. I later published in its uh, journal when I went to Papua New Guinea and studied out-of-body experiences cross-culturally there. I also published in the anthropological journal Oceania on what the sorcerers there were getting up to. But at this stage, I was, you know, just 18 years old. I'd failed my exams, and the reason being that I was spending all my time not studying the textbooks of physics, chemistry, geology, and geography, as I was meant to be doing, but reading up on mystical experience and psychic experiences, because it seemed to me that if it was possible for the psyche to connect across space and time, if paranormal experience was for real, then that says things about what it means to be a human being and to be interconnected with one another that gives real empirical evidence to such biblical statements as being members one of another, branches on the vine of life, or in Hinduism, Atman, the individual soul, ultimately is Brahman, at one with Brahman, the universal soul, you see? So that was, you know, that became my overwhelming passion. In fact, I don't know how polite I have to be on your show, David, but... Um, if I'm allowed a little indiscretion, I would say that in those days I had a two-track mind, sex and spirituality. Sex and spirituality. Uh, and, Very good. I would say, <laughs> well, there is a relationship between the two, as you know. I, 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 I would say now I'm 68 that one of the advantages is that as a needle starts wavering away from one of those, it, it tends to slide over the libido, goes into the other one. So there is a great advantage in having more than just a one-track mind because the spiritual life, as you know, doesn't die. It gets bigger and bigger. But this is what happened to me, because you you asked about a shaping moment. So there I was, you know, I was reading all of this stuff. I was experimenting. I was doing, like a lot of people then, I was doing transcendental meditation and hoping I would get off into a mystical experience. I was doing all kinds of breathing exercises, <laughs> you know, trying to trip myself out. On, none of it would work. My My state of consciousness was totally stuck in the normal state of consciousness, notwithstanding reading Charles Tart and all of these consciousness psychologists. Well, I had to reset my physics exam, or that was properly called then natural philosophy. Natural philosophy, like economics Natural. was called political economy. There we, there we go. And, you know, in contrast with moral philosophy, I subsequently failed the chemistry research and the wise advisor of study said, Alistair, why don't you instead study moral philosophy instead of repeating chemistry. That took me on a completely different path. It was wonderful. Anyhow, I was sitting for the research of natural philosophy, which I should say I passed. And as I was doing so, my father was ill at the time. My father was a doctor in the Isle of Lewis. So this is in the Isle of Lewis, rural setting. My father was ill in Inverness on the mainland. And my mother was flying off to the mainland to go and visit him. Now, my mother drove into the town of Stornoway, seven miles away, Nearly every day. So what I'm, you know, her going off into Stornoway was a completely normal occurrence. And after she had been gone for about 10 minutes, I looked up 
from my desk, only to see my father's beloved whippet dog called Sheba. To see Sheba jumping out of the ditch on the other side of the road, running across and slap-bang into a passing vehicle on the road. I dropped my books. I ran out. The first thing I did, because I could see the dog was um, totally dead, the first thing I did, I, I reassured the driver, who was very distraught, that he'd killed the doctor's dog. Everybody knew it. it was such an, there was only one whippet on the Isle of Lewis in those days. My, my father used to get away with taking it on the plane, on the British European Airways <laughs> plane, as it was called, because he'd put it under his Harris Tweed jacket. Imagine him in his plus fours and his Harris Tweed yes. jacket. Lovely. And and the airline staff would say, oh, excuse me, doctor, but dogs aren't allowed in the plane. And my father would say, that's not a dog. It's an Abyssinian gazelle. And they'd, they'd wave him on, you see. I mean, that was how it would be in those mm. days. So, Wouldn't you know, everybody knew. security these days. Oh, oh. And, and, and whippets, my father used to say, are very one-person dogs. Sheba had an intimate bond with my dad because he had rescued her from abuse. So I reassured the driver, I said, there was nothing you could do. And then I did what any rural child would do in those days. I went to the byre, the cow's shed, and I got a spade and a hessian sack. And I put her bloody body into the sack and carried her out of the moor and started to dig a grave. Well, David, I'd no sooner dug the grave when I saw my mother's car coming high speed over the hill. I mean, there was me. Can you imagine me? It was it was as if I regressed. I was needing my mother because this, remember, was 1974, the summer of 74 to be August 74. This was before no mobile, mobile phones. Phone. Yeah, this no. was when if you wanted to speak to a patient in a hospital, they had to bring a trolley and plug the phone in. It was all very complicated. It was before mobile phones. And, you know, here was my mother's car reappearing at high speed over the hill. So I dropped my spade and I ran to the car. My mother skidded to a halt on the gravel. She jumped out looking like a ghost and she shouted at me, what's the matter? I said, the dog's dead. She said, thank goodness, I thought it might have been a child. She thought it might have been me or my sister. Mm. She'd mm. been on the... Outskirts of Stornoway, as I say, seven miles away, when she felt an overwhelming urge to turn back because she knew something was wrong at home. And, you know, in all the years we had lived in the Isle of Lewis, we went there in 1960, this was 1974, as I say, in all those you know, years, nothing like that had ever happened before. Although my mother did have the second sight, it would happen on other occasions too. Well, she was able to head back and still catch the plane in time. And she went to my father's bedside in Inverness, Vigmore Hospital, and said, I've got bad news for you, Ian. He said, I know. It's Sheba, isn't it? She said, how did you know? And he said, because all last night I was kept awake by Sheba jumping up on my bed and pawing me. Mm, you know, goodness. you know, it's he was such um, an interesting story <laughs> because of the the different connections and interconnections and, and the mind beyond time and space, as it were. You've named it, and as you have often brought out in your medical and scientific journal, one of the characteristics of such experience, which differs from the laboratory, um, you know, the Rhine-type laboratory, Zena test and 
elaborations there on experimental testing of telepathy or psi in its general sense is that in a situation like this and a situation which is commonplace amongst indigenous peoples, both in the Isle of Lewis and in other parts of the world, like Papua New Guinea, where I studied it, you've got very high emotional charge because people are intimately connected together. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that, uh, that's so interesting. But I think we better go back to Aberdeen uh, and ask you if during your university years or when you were young, was there an influential mentor or teacher who was able to give you support and guidance? Well, if you take it back to that time, it's hard to answer because at the time I wouldn't have thought it was anybody. But now I realize that, you know, the saying it takes a whole community to raise a child. Because I was growing up in a a crofting, which is a small-scale agriculture and fishing community, and we were engaged in those activities, you know, turning the hay, bringing the peats, looking after the cow, um, caring for the horse. I mean, literally, when I was a boy, there was still a village plough horse that would plough the potato furrows and so on. Because I was involved in all of that, the whole community raised me. So, you know, I think of old men in the village and I I think of an English incomer woman, Stella Sills, who were important figures, taking me out fishing in the boats, um, doing things with me on the land, connecting me into what it meant to be community. Um, I, I can remember me and my friend Jock McKenzie in Kew's the time that the Lock Hughes Angling Association, um, of which my father was um, one of the members, decided to build um, a series of small dams in the river going into Lock Hughes to improve the spawning grounds for the trout. And we needed to build some concrete dams. So we were carrying these hundredweight sacks. Um, what's a hundredweight in kilograms, David? It's um, a 50 no, kilograms. 25 yeah. kilograms. 50 kilograms. Like I mean, that. it's not allowed these days. Mm. Um, you know, they're 25 kilograms these days because they were causing hernias. But, you know, in those days, a sack of cement was 50 kilograms. And, you know, here would be us aged 15, 16, only just able to carry that weight on our shoulders. And we were having to carry these sacks across the moor to make the cement. And the thing that I remember is very visceral, it's very embodied, because I can remember us young lads, you know, we would insist on being allowed to carry our sack of cement, but we'd only manage for about less than 10 minutes before we'd be staggering. And the way the older men would just come up and they'd, they'd tilt their shoulders in towards us and put an arm around our bag of cement and roll it over onto their own shoulders. Now, that is such a visceral thing. It's like when I was out in my canoe down at um, Renfrew a few years ago, and and the guy who runs the ferry between Renfrew and Yoker across the River Clyde uh, was repairing the engine. And I thought, this is interesting. The the ferryman can also repair the engine. That's not all that common these days. So I went and spoke to him, and he looked at my inflatable canoe, which um, you can see in a bag in my... Oh, Officer, yes. <laughs> there okay. it all is. Yeah. He looked at my inflatable canoe and he said, "That's a real boat." I said, "What do you mean, the plastic boat?" He said, "It's the proper shape of boat." He said, "You know, his ferry was, his ferry was square shaped." Oops, I've just knocked over my hip flask of whiskey. 
um, uh, um, his family was square-shaped, um, whereas mine was boat-shaped. And he said, I said, you know, where were you from recognizing his ac- accent? He said, Eriski, one of the Hebridean islands. I, sa- I said, how did you learn to, you, to go to sea? He said, my father took me. He said, my father didn't believe in engines. My father only used the oars or the sail. I said, well, I was always one for the oars. And he said, what my father did is he took me into the boat and he sat me on the thwart beside him and he put an arm round me as we would sail. And as he leaned his body, my body would lean too. And that is how I learned to sail. You see, yeah. this this is the depth yes, of it's mentoring. It's visceral and experience. embodied, isn't it? It's yeah. You, it's you know, you it's say. not just an intellectual mentoring. It's a a very embodied thing. That's why you know I've I've got here a large quantity of multicolored mackerel feathers. Look at that! I've got about twenty packs because I was ordering some mackerel feathers. And look at the beautiful colours. Um, and I mentioned to the guy I was buying them from that I take young people out. Um, I take young people out uh, with their families, mackerel fishing the season, to give them that experience. And he says, oh, my wife and I used to do that too. And so when I was ordering some feathers, he said, let me send you some extra. And he he sent me all the multicolored ones that he's not been selling so well. So I've got them to give away to these young folk as souvenirs. But that's me passing on what I was given. I was given that kind of experience. And now I try to pass that on to others. Yes, you're mentored by elders, by community members, and by life. You're mentored especially by life. And, you know, this is where the the capacity to be immersed in nature with people, not separated from people, but with people who are of the land and sea, I, I think is, is such a gift and something that we're often losing in today's world but we need to bring it consciously back, which is why my wife and I, for 20 years, we've lived in Govan here in Glasgow, which, as you know, is a hard-pressed part of a poor city because we're involved with the Galgale Trust, which builds boats and gets young people out onto the water so that they can have that experience of reconnection with nature and then reconnection and community with one another. Yes. No, I think it's so necessary Alistair, let's go on to some books that have shaped your life and, and thinking. I, I'm sure it's quite a difficult question to answer because there'll be a lot of them. What 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 uh, occurs to you? Hmm. Um, in terms of you know, spirituality and consciousness, at Aberdeen University, one of the ways I misspent my use was I founded the Aberdeen University Parapsychological Society um, almost as soon as I arrived there in 1973, age 17. And we would, you know, have multiple speakers. We had Hans Eysenck, the famous psychologist, speaking on astrology, would you believe? Um, interestingly, I wasn't very convinced by what he said. It was it gave me a second take on his controversial views on race and intelligence because he was um, using in his sample people who had self-selected in having already had their astrological charts done. So he had, mm. in my view, he had contaminated data. 
Uh, we had Professor John Taylor, who was investigating Yuri Geller, all of that kind of stuff. And I led a trip to Findhorn to, you know, to see the giant strawberries and cabbages, only to be told by a wonderful retired um, English banker, where we're trying to play down the cabbages and strawberries now, yes. because right. it's actually about spirituality and consciousness. And I went into the shop and there was Charles T. Tarp's book, Altered States of Consciousness. So that was very seminal. Also, um, Hermann Hesse, Siddhartha, was seminal. Carl Jung, I couldn't, you know, I was reading Jung then, instead of studying my physics and chemistry, I was Quite reading right. Jung. Um, but I, I, I couldn't, I didn't have the handles, intellectual or even spiritual handles, to handle him properly. But Memories, Dreams and Reflections is very accessible. Um, Hermann Hesse, Siddhartha. You know the the archetype, well. young man's journey, the pilgrimage of life, and then feminist literature. Um, Alice Walker, um, the color purple. Um, you know where it starts off with a lesbian love relationship, but then becomes a love relationship with God, or is in, it integrates that? These kind of things were influential to me. Yes, I when I was teaching at Winchester, I used to um, prescribe um, a Hermann Hesse novel every year. Oh, uh, beautiful! It, it varied. You know, sometimes it was Siddhartha. Um, yeah. uh, the, the 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 glass bead game was a little too demanding, but but uh, Damien, yeah. for instance, uh, the Prodigy was another one. Yeah, and then Nazis and Goldman. Um, so interesting you say that about glass bead game because that's what he got the Nobel Prize for literature for. But as so often, you know, they give the prize for the most recent book, not the best book. And I, I had to discontinue reading Glass Bead Game. I just didn't get into it. But Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, I've read three times in my life. Yes, and I've even read it in German, in fact. It's one of the very few things I've read in German. <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot in common there, Alistair, I think. And then I'm going on to the next question, which is uh, about a key moment of insight in your work in relation to the nature of consciousness. Hmm. I don't know whether there's anything that occurs to you because you, you, you've had such a varied career and you brought your spirituality and your values very much to bear on your environmental work, obviously, in particular. Well, I described to you earlier that paranormal experience with the dog dying, and that's at the psychic level of experience, but of course, you know, you read things. I mean, Paramhansa Yogananda, Autobiography of a Yogi, would be another book. And people like him are at pains to point out that whereas these psychic experiences may occur along the way, don't be distracted by them because they are only a warmer pack to much deeper spiritual experience. And in the 19, early 1990s, I'd come back from four years in Papua New Guinea and I was starting to teach human ecology at Edinburgh University and getting the first British human ecology degree off the ground was my colleague Ulrich Loning. Yeah, and at the same time, that's when you know, the stuff of my best-known book, Soil and Soul, People versus Corporate Power, um, came into its own because I got involved with land reform. You know, land reform is a big issue, or land is a big issue in Papua New Guinea, Coming back to Scotland, um, I got invited to be involved as land reform in the Isle of Egg and also the Harris Super Quarry campaign. Now, when you get involved in a deep activist campaign around something like that, it, it's incredibly demanding. 
because you're putting yourself out on a limb. Um, you asked about mentors. A man called Tom Forsyth, a crofter from the peninsula of Skorig, came to see me and asked if I would join him and two others in setting up the Isle of Egg Trust. So we had no money. We were a penniless trust, as the media dubbed us. But we set the objective to bring the 7,000-acre Isle of Egg into community ownership as a challenge to the patriarchal model of uh, private land ownership that has blighted Scotland in the past. And you know, Tom's big saying would be always quoting the book of Proverbs, without vision the people perish. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but the day came, I mean, we launched the trust in Edinburgh in July 91, complete with the, the landlord, Keith Schellenberg, turned up and the media, the TV cameras were there and all the rest of it. It was all such a big joke, you know, the fact that we had no money and the island was valued at three million, something like that. But we then had the launch on the island a bit later in October of that year. And you know, your, your question at the moment in relation to the nature of consciousness. And when you're doing this kind of work, David, you know, whether it's protecting the mountain and Harris or trying to bring the land back into the hands of the community, one of the big issues you have to wrestle with, or I had to wrestle with within myself, was legitimacy. What grounds, what right, what calling in a spiritual sense did I have with this? And I was to give the speech in the community tea room to the whole community, laying out the vision, because the circumstances were such that the community at that stage was not in a position to form its own vision. I don't need to go into the detail of that. That's all in the book. But I would like to read you this passage from page 185 of Soil and Soul, just to tell you what happened. So here we were in Mary Kirk or Mary McKinnon, as she is now, in her house in Cleedale in the Isle of Egg in October 91. And we're about to go to this seminal community meeting, after which the community would vote what was it, 73% in favour of what we were doing. But that hadn't been achieved as yet. This is what happened on the way to that meeting. To the west, the Atlantic thunders. Mary releases a handbrake. The Land Rover rolls down the hill past her house and we bump start with a jerk. In the crofting village of Cleedale, a minibus and several cars are picking people up. All are heading to the tea room. It looks like it's going to be a good turnout. Mary shifts the Land Rover into a lower gear. We grind steeply up the twisting single-track road. The island's central plateau opens out on top. And then a very strange thing indeed happens. We're passing the higher spot in the middle of Egg. It's just before the road drops down through the hazelwood. I'm crouched in the floor, uncomfortably bouncing along in the back. And I start to become aware that a river is flowing into me. A river. It feels like all the ancient blocked-up wells and springs are broken free. They're merging and melding, and the confluence is a torrential, silvery stream of light. I'm bathed, soothed, inwardly illuminated. I become aware of what the stream is composed of. Voices. A vast chorus of them, 
They're literally flowing out from the rocks and the soil. They're coming from all around the highlands. The earth, the ground itself, is our source. These are the voices of the old people. The dead are with us. Dry bones have come back to life. And David, I, I flowed into that meeting with that silvery stream, with that fire in me, to a meeting of people who were very dubious as to what we were proposing. And, I mean, the speech is all online. It's on my website and so on. It was published afterwards in the Edinburgh Review and the West Highland Free Press. But it was just like something else happened. And um, that got us a 73% vote of confidence. And on 12th of June, 1997, um, Egg came into community ownership after the community, which progressively took over the running of the Isle of Egg Trust, raised £1.6 million. Pounds. So you asked about, you know, a, a key insight in relation to the nature of consciousness and that sense that this was about more than me. This was about a sense of community that transcends space and time. It was archetypal connection with the Jungian collective unconscious that I actually experienced and which fed into that highly political moment. Yes, what an extraordinary story, Alistair. Thank you for sharing that. And moving moving on, in a way you've answered this question already, but my question is how your understanding of consciousness influences the way you live your life. And it seems to me that you know one flows into the other, you know, from what you just said, you know, for instance. So there's a there's a seamless consistency of inner and outer um, of contemplation and action. Absolutely, David, because Consciousness is not something abstract. Consciousness is the very means of our experience of anything. There is nothing in our experience without consciousness. And so, you know, a lot of my work with um, rural poverty in the context of land reform and urban poverty with the Galgale Trust here or in the Global South the four years in Papua New Guinea with the South Pacific Appropriate Technology Foundation and such, and the Catholic Church also, although I'm not a Catholic, I'm a Quaker, but two years with them. A lot of that is about activating consciousness in community, of waking up, of what Paulo Freire of Brazil calls conscientization. And interestingly, I've been reading, um, in fact, I just the other day took delivery of... Um, a new book. Yeah, here we are. The Politics of Education by Freire. His pedagogy, the oppressed, is very well known. But in The Politics of Education, I mean, he's got two chapters in here on liberation theology. Here we are, education, liberation, and church. And then a, a, an extended review he does of James Cohn, the black liberation theologian, um, a chapter entitled In Praise of a Black Theology of Liberation. Now, notice here how my Presbyterian upbringing in the Isle of Lewis starts to become very relevant again because it, you know, it gave me a basic biblical literacy which I've used a lot in my work of doing liberation theology. Gustavo Gutierrez of Peru, when he spoke in Scotland around about 1990, spoke about the importance of just, you, you don't just talk about theology, you do it and how do you do theology? You do it amongst people. 
it's about consciousness raising. It's as as Jesus puts it in John ten ten. Um, I come that they might have not just any old sodding life, but promised life abundantly. That's my translation of John ten ten. You know, it's about how to live abundantly. This is about opening consciousness and conscience. Our agency connect. So consciousness, you know, those early um, neglecting my physics and chemistry in order to study altered states of consciousness has really found meanings for my life and has been very, and remains very central to it. I totally see the work that I am engaged in as being about that. It so happened this morning, I had breakfast in Glasgow with James Jones, a former Bishop of Liverpool. Oh, yes. Was up, up here speaking to Scottish churches together today. And, you know, we were talking about just this kind of thing, and we we're talking about the Lord's Prayer. You know, um, our ground of being, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy community come. You know, what does kingdom mean in yes, present day terms? That. That means community. Thy community come. Thy will be, or thine opening of the way be done. Thy dharma be done. Thy Tao be done. In us as it is in heaven. And James made a very interesting point. He said, you know, in the liturgy that is normally given in the Church of England, of which he is, was a bishop, he's a retired bishop, they put a comma in. In the Greek, there is no, there are no commas in the Greek, but they say, "Hallowed be the name, Thy will be done, comma, in earth as it is in heaven." Whereas, in fact, he said, "You know, we should be reading, Thy will be done in earth as in heaven." You see, that's consciousness. Mm, yes, that is conscious, and and that's liberation theology because that reshapes a stuck form that separates off the will of God from what happens on earth by that yes, imposition we don't need comma. the comma you're absolutely <laughs> right so we're, oh, we're, we're coming towards the, the close Alistair so I want to ask you a couple more questions do you have a proverb you live by or a favourite quote or quotes a proverb that you know my best known book is Soil and Soul I think my most beautiful book is Porter's Pilgrimage, which came out in 2016, where I'm walking through my own island of Lewis and Harris, but using that to reflect on the world, especially through the insights I gained from 20-odd years of lecturing in military staff colleges about nonviolence and talking to soldiers about war and what it's like to kill and how to move beyond war. And... Because I'm from the Isle of Lewis and because Donald Trump's mother emigrated from the Isle of Lewis in 1930 at a time of multiple levels of intergenerational trauma, I've taken a very great interest in Trump and his cult in America and trying to understand where that is coming from in people who historically, many of them emigrated to America because of oppression in Ireland and Scotland and in England, going back to the enclosures, people being moved off the land and so on. And you cannot separate that from the evangelical theology, which is where a lot of Trump's base is coming from. But it's also a theology that I was raised in. So a lot of what I'm doing in Poacher's Pilgrimage 
is I'm engaging with what I call an ecology of the imagination. Experiencing the land I'm working, walking through, four days of that time without meeting anybody out in the wilds, experiencing the land in those extreme situations I experienced as being not just um, something that I engage with through my imagination, but also an imagination of God that I move in. You know, Ibn Arabi in Henri Corbin's book, Alone with the Alone here, he talks about prayer being engagement with the creative imagination of God. Everything is creative imagination. So by an ecology of the imagination, I mean understanding nature and all that is around us as extensions of the imagination of God, which rather like in that description I gave of the voices of the old people flowing into me comes about. But I'm wrestling as I'm doing so with this hardline Calvinistic theology that I was raised in and which they have in America also, the Puritan theologies of America, which are the heritage of the Donald Trump cult-type evangelicalism. And a lot of what that is about is reinterpreting atonement theories of the cross in a manner that is not violent, that is not about, as Calvin put it, a God who is armed for vengeance, but rather is about the God of love. It's about the Christ of nonviolence, of put away your sword, Peter, we will have no more of this. And your question was about a favourite proverb, and what came to me as I was writing Porch's pilgrimage was that the cross absorbs the violence of the world. Mm. The cross, that non that action yes. of nonviolence of Jesus and allowing himself to have this done to him. As he says in John's Gospel, you know, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would take up the sword and come to save me. But my kingdom is or my community is not of this world, because it's like thy community come in us yes, as is in yes. heaven. No, that's a, yeah. that's so, a wonderful the cross absorbs the violence. It's a dynamic reality. And it's a, it's a redemptive action, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. as it happens, I'm, I'm reading a biography of Padre Pio at the moment. Oh, and yeah. the intensity of, the, of those spiritual processes that he goes through yeah. you know, reminds me of what you just said. It, well, exactly. Your people like Padre appear, they get dismissed as for the simple faithful. But you know, after I went to Ireland and also what I experienced in Papua New Guinea, I, I developed a lot of respect for people who are simple faithful. And you know, I often find there is more heart in such people. And I would say, including people like Donald Trump supporters, you will find more heart than often you will find amongst the academics at the university. Indeed, but, indeed. You, you know, this is where we need to understand this. and We need to deepen our liberation theology. Yes, and relate, as you've been saying, consciousness with conscience. And in Fr France, in French, they're the same word, um, which is, is interesting. Anyway, just wrapping up, um, Alistair, would you, is there any advice you would give your younger self? From where you are now hmm. well that's an interesting one but i do a lot of mentoring of young people when i say mentoring i mean totally informally like i said taking them out fishing or you know cooking a meal at the gal gale crust or catching mackerel and cooking them something like that 
And one of the things I've been playing a lot on recently is that when I look back over my own life, there's been times when it felt like, you know, things were going wrong, like failing my chemistry and physics exams. So when I, um, my first wife and I got divorced and the family were bitterly disappointed in me and all the rest of it. Times when things go like that in life, and yet when I look back on it now, there is no wastage. And I would say you my advice to my younger self or my advice to other younger selves who might be experimenting uncertainly, uncertainly um, is that the right word? It was where they go in life, is at the end of the day, there is no redundancy. Everything has meaning. And therefore, as Mama Wanma in Numfor Island in West Papua said to me, sit up, pay attention. You have work to do. Get on with it. There is no wastage to get on with it. Indeed. And and I, I, I couldn't agree more because you never know what the complete outcome of an experience is until much later. And there's an oh. alchemical process at work. It's quite astonishing. I mean, I, I get letters from people remembering some conversation I'd completely forgotten. And it's you know maybe just something that I said that drops into place. But equally, sometimes when I meet an old mentor and I will say to them, you know, when I was such and such an age, you said such and such to me. And they'll have completely forgotten it. But, you know, these things are like little locks and keys in the psyche. They open up the flow of life. And what we need to be about in our world today, David, is to, I'm not going to say activate consciousness, but allow consciousness to be activated in us and through us, because this is a transcendent process, bigger than being within our ego control, to allow consciousness to come alive, alive, to help to open up the flows of life back into a deadened world. You did ask for a proverb, but also perhaps a quote. And a quote I would draw upon would be from the great cross-cultural Hindu, Christian, Indian, Spanish, late scholar Raimundo Panica of Spain or Catalonia, however he would define himself, uh, who says, only forgiveness breaks the law of consciousness. Uh, breaks the law of karma. <laughs> What's Uncle Freud doing there? Only, only forgiveness breaks the law of karma. Only forgiveness breaks the law of karma. That's that's one that I ride on so much. You know, you look at what's happening with Israel and Palestine just now. The knock-on effects of spirals of violence, Russia and Ukraine. What can be the end of it? The end of it can only be an, a bringing to consciousness of the reality that only forgiveness can break the law of karma. That's the meaning of the course. That's what Alistair, thank you so much for sharing your life <laughs> wisdom with us. And, and what a wonderful quote to finish on. Only forgiveness can break. Did you say the law of karma? The law of karma. Yes. Well, that's yeah, exactly only, what we need. Yeah, Thank you so much. Only forgiveness breaks the law of karma. <laughs>